Hello, church family, or should I say, good evening. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Anna Nickel, um, but you can just call me Anna. Uh, tonight I get to share with all of you what the Lord has been doing in my life and how he has been showing me lots of grace. Um, over the past several months, God has been really chiseling away at my heart um, and the walls I have built up for myself over years of my life. I grew up in a Christian home and went to church almost every Sunday, but I have struggled to have a personal relationship with the Lord because as God is showing me, I have often viewed him as someone who doesn't, as someone who merely tolerates me and that he doesn't truly love me. My whole life I have lived under the bondage of perfection and performance, desiring myself to be the absolute best in every situation and putting my performance bar at 150% all the time. Knowing I will never actually reach that bar, yet believing if I don't, I have failed, and when I indeed don't hit the bar, I am a failure. I am an overthinker and a people pleaser. I am almost constantly thinking of what other people are thinking about me and responding out of how I think they want me to respond based on what I think they are thinking about me. This mindset has shaped the view of myself, others, and ultimately God. I struggle to spend time with God because I'm quick to think, I didn't read my Bible yesterday, so how can I come before him today? Or, I didn't wake up this morning at 6 a.m. and spend my first few minutes with him, therefore my day is already ruined, and what's the point of trying? To be honest, I'm quick to think that way with a lot of situations in my life. Why try if I have already failed? I'm quick to think of God on the same level as myself, and if I have so many crazy emotions, doesn't God? And if I don't ever think well of myself, how could anyone else? I have built walls to protect me from being hurt by others based on what I think they are thinking, all the while already hurting because what I think that person is thinking about me hurts. Those were the glasses and lies I wore for years of my life. And if I'm being honest, those are the glasses I often put back on in the morning because that prescription seems very normal to me. Hmm. But God is doing a lot of healing in my life. Through his word, Bible studies, friends, family, and this church, God is reshaping my view of himself, me, and others. He is showing me that he truly does love me with a love I do not understand. And that's okay. That his love has nothing to do with me. It is all him. That I don't have to be perfect or have it all put together to go to him. And it is only because of him and what he did for me on the cross that I can run into his arms with all of my crazy emotions instead of stuffing them inside or physically eating them away. Pastor Timothy said last week that God calls us to love him, but in order to love him, we have to know how much he loves us, that we love because he first loved us. I confess I have not always... I have not always understood or believed God's love for me to be true and have struggled to truly love God. 
But God is so good, and he has been showing me his great love for me and how I can love him in return. Surrender. I have always thought of surrender as a scary thing, that if I surrendered everything to the Lord, he would make me do something I didn't want to do, and that people would think I was weird and would reject me. I was once again more concerned about what others thought of me than what God thought of me. I always thought if I gave all of myself to God, he would call me to the remote jungle somewhere on a missions trip that would end up being my permanent home with nothing I love. You know, like the basics, coffee, shopping, friends, all that fun stuff. But God has been changing and reshaping my view of surrender. It's kind of a funny story, or at least I think it's kind of funny and ironic sometimes how God works. But he actually brought about a mission trip this past year for me. Um, it was during uh, September and October of this last year. Um, that he used um, my BSF group in Grand Rapids um, and the study through the book of Joshua to show me how completely surrendered Joshua was in the Lord, and I wanted to be that same way. This same time, the leaders of the young adult BSF group were putting together a team to go to Haiti for the March of this year, and I knew God was asking me to go. Also at that time, my Bible study here at Ventura with Mrs. Dury and Bailey and Hannah was going through a book called Surrender. God has a really large sense of humor sometimes, and it just is really funny to me sometimes. Um, it took several months of praying and asking others to pray for me about the mission trip. I know I was really stalling because I had a lot of fear about going, um, but God brought me to a place of surrender to say yes to him and to go to Haiti. Through the months leading up to my trip to Haiti, God really gave me the opportunity to see the beauty in surrender and the freedom in surrender. That surrender is completely life-changing and weight-lifting. He showed me that when I surrender to him, there is so much peace and joy even in the midst of uncertainties and fears. Funny thing again, my team and I didn't actually end up going to Haiti this past March. Um, our trip was canceled for political unrest in the country and heightened circumstances. Um, yet God had a plan. And the very next day from when I found out my trip was canceled, um, so we were supposed to leave um, on a Wednesday, and we found out the Friday before that it was canceled. Um, that Saturday... Um, God showed his love and mercy and provision in my life um, as Aaron and I were in a car accident that flipped Aaron's car. And we both walked away completely unharmed. It was in that split second and the hours and days that followed that I realized my life is truly not my own. And only through God and his great grace and love for me that I am here and can know God as my heavenly father. I know God uses all things and that he has been pursuing and preparing my heart all along to not only surrender a week in a different country or the many tears and questions of why Aaron and I didn't die in the car accident or the years of lies I have listened to to show me how I need to truly surrender all of me to him all the time and to give me a glimpse of his great love for me. My time, money, passions, future, fears, failures, expectations, and life are all to be given to Christ. I don't have to carry any of it. 
Even though I stand up here today, I want you to know I still struggle. I struggle to surrender. I struggle to trust God and not try and take control. I struggle to not believe those lies and put on those glasses. But God is bigger than the lies I have believed. He is bigger than the fears I have. He is bigger and his love is greater. I am so thankful that God has chosen to pour out his grace upon grace on me and that he continues to pursue the broken and emotional mess that I am. That when he sees me, he doesn't run the other direction like I am so quick to do. He runs towards me, arms open wide, and he calls me by name. Not because of anything I have done or ever could do, but because he loves me. And because he first loved me, I am now free to love him. Thank you. Hello. I am Erica Nickel, and this is what God has done in my life. I'm going to try not to cry. I'm already a little emotional. So I grew up in a Christian home. I accepted Jesus in my heart at a young age. At that time, I knew I was a sinner and needed a savior, but I didn't really know what following Jesus looked like or how to live that out. It wasn't until 2011, upon graduating high school, did I come to understand my desperate need for Christ, not just on my bad days, but all the time. 2011 and 2016 were really hard years for me. During this time, I was extremely depressed, anxious, and struggled with panic attacks often. There were many times I didn't think that I was going to make it. I was very suicidal and often had to be with people at all times because I didn't trust myself to be alone. For a long time, I would weep as I went to sleep at night, asking and pleading with the Lord to take my life. I would weep as I woke up because that meant I had to face another day. This went on for a long time. It wasn't really until I fully came to the end of myself. No more pretending I was great. No more trying to be strong and hold it all together. No more fake smiles. I was weak and very broken. I couldn't battle these things on my own anymore, and I needed help. After many months of battling myself and the strength I thought I had, I sought out biblical counseling with much encouragement from my parents. Over the next eight weeks of meeting with a counselor weekly, I could feel things shift inside. You see, the gospel, it changes us. We aren't the same when we dive into his word and allow it to shape and renew us. I was being challenged in God's word like never before. No longer was I reading God's word to mark it off the to-do list or reading so that I could tell others what a good person I was. I was reading it because I had nothing left and I was desperate for God to show up and heal my brokenness. And boy, did God show up. Through his word, 
God was showing me all the lies I had been believing about himself and about me. He was showing me firsthand his mighty strength, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his truth, his goodness, his joy, and his hope. God was opening my eyes to see his word in a new and personal way. God was showing me that I didn't have to be strong and have it all together, but that I could be weak and broken. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God was changing my sorrow into joy, my tears into laughter, and my hopelessness into hope. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God has and still is doing a mighty work in my heart. And I am so overwhelmed with thankfulness that I don't live in that dark place anymore. Not because of anything I have done, but because of who God is and who he promises to always be. Because of Jesus, and I thought this was really cool that we sang this song, I am able to say it is well with my soul. To God be the glory. Thank you so much. Let's pray as we get into the word. Father, we thank you that you are a God who affects and engages in our lives and that your word really is living and active and that your, sa- that your son, Jesus, really is the Savior and that we can trust you and that we know you are faithful always. Thank you for doing your work in our lives and even promising to continue to do that. And I pray that you would do that even as we hear your word preached tonight as we spend time in your word. I pray that you would grant us greater zeal and trust, trust in you to expose lies and to embrace, embrace your truth. So may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been immensely grateful for the last couple of months personally uh, for Ben and Mike and Jonathan's preaching. Um, One of the elders encouraged me to take a break on Sunday evenings, more so just for my own um, health and pain issues and let some other guys preach and Um, But it's been more encouraging to me, not just from the the health perspective, as it is just to hear other people preach to me, 
because I'm usually the one preaching. So it's been wonderful to sit and to listen, and I have been challenged. I have been strengthened from from Mike's sermon on spiritual discipline, um, and then Jonathan's on spiritual warfare. Uh, God worked within me greater zeal for him, and I've been anticipating even this message tonight, which is on spiritual warfare, and it's going to be the last in this short series on spiritual warfare. Um, And actually, let's see, Um, In the coming weeks, there's not Sunday evening services until I think it's June now. So we've got Mother's Day, and then we have our members meeting. Um, So no Sunday evening service then, then Memorial Day, and then uh, we'll be back together on Sunday evenings. And what I'm going to do in the summertime is a series on a Christ-centered marriage. Uh, what does, how does Christ affect marriages? And actually, this, is, this wouldn't just be for people who are married. So um, this would be an encouragement to everyone, I hope, I hope. And you can pray towards that end. Um, but tonight on spiritual warfare, and uh, not this past week, but the week before, I was talking with David about uh, the topic of spiritual warfare, and we were going back and forth, um, talking different ideas in his office. And David gave me two illustrations that really encouraged me, and they encouraged me so much. I was like, I'm taking those illustrations and using them in a sermon, but I will give you the credit for those illustrations. Um, the first illustration that he gave, uh, he said something like, imagine you're in France during World War II. And you've got the jets flying over, and there's the warfare ensuing, um, the threats of, of bombing and, and battling, and you're sitting there in your home, and you're deciding, what should I do today? And you think the best idea is just to go outside and plant seeds and build your garden. And so you've got jets flying over, and you're planting your little seeds And not even focused on the death that could be taking place and the battle that's taking place. And David said, I think that that's how a lot of Christians think about the Christian life. And and I I think he's right. I remember in college going through a class on the book of Ephesians and I had a professor who said that he believed that if God were to remove the veil between this realm and the other realm, the spiritual realm, that he believes that we as Christians would have much greater zeal in our fight against sin and fight for godliness. And you could say, well, if, if that were to be the case, then why doesn't God do it? And actually, my response to that would be, I think God in some ways has removed the veil. He has given us his word. He's told us about the angelic realm. He's told us about the spiritual warfare that exists. He's told us how we relate in it. But I think maybe sometimes it's so confusing to us that we just kind of think, well, I'll just do other things and not really worry about the spiritual warfare piece. And we're completely wrong in doing that. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that planting seeds and having a garden is a sin, okay? Even though I'm not good at that, you know, that doesn't mean that it's a sin for you to do that. But I do want you to get this, that I think that the enemy seeks to lull us with God's gifts. And so with all of God's gifts, instead of being lulled with those gifts and not thinking about the spiritual dimensions, we should, whether we're planting a garden, eating, conversing with people, pray and ask, Lord, what does it look like to live for your glory in these types of things? What does it look like to magnify Christ's name in these types of things? Let's not be like the world that ignores spiritual warfare. Let's wake up to the realities. 
So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Probably the most well-known passage on spiritual warfare in the New Testament. But we're going to read only verses 10 through 12. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, my focus tonight isn't so much on the armor of God. Many messages will go that direction, and that's entirely appropriate. But the title of my sermon tonight is Know Your Enemy. Paul talks to Timothy, and he says that you are a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And that statement is meant for all disciples of Jesus. We are soldiers of Jesus Christ. We are engaged in a battle that is cosmic. But as soldiers, soldiers aren't simply trained to fight. Fight anything. Fight everything. Ah, that, you know, squirrel, you know. Um, Maybe you want, maybe you don't like squirrels. But anyway, either way, we as soldiers have to recognize who's our enemy and who isn't our enemy because soldiers are to be trained to serve and protect friendlies and then to attack the enemy. And they're also to be able to differentiate between those two in the various stages and situations of life. And I think it's very important for us as Christians to recognize and, and ask ourselves the question, who is our enemy? So that's the first question. First point, who is our enemy? Paul says in Ephesians here that our enemy consists of the devils, or the devil, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, some of us might look at this and say, these are all just different terminology for the same thing. Other people, and I lean in this direction, believe that these are different classes of spiritual beings, different ranks and authorities that exist within this spiritual realm, in the sinful spiritual realm, those beings who have followed after Satan when Satan rebelled against the Lord. So they're rebels against God's plan, and they seek to destroy what he has made. Now think about this a little bit more. As we ponder Satan's fall, what did Satan, or actually, let let me say this, where does it seem Satan went first after he rebelled against God? From a biblical perspective, as far as our understanding is concerned, where does it seem Satan went first? After he rebelled against God. Earth. Okay? That's where it seems. And he went to Adam and Eve. Or went to Eve specifically in order to tempt her. Now, the Bible tells us that angels, and I'm talking about those who didn't rebel against God, that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to human beings. Human beings from... A, from 
the Bible's perspective, which is truth. Human beings are created in the image of God. They are communicated as the highest of God's creation. And angels, while extremely powerful, are meant to minister to human beings. So when Satan rebels against God, and God has intended for his angelic beings to minister to humans, it makes complete sense that Satan is going to do the exact opposite than what God has called him to do. So he comes not to minister to human beings, he comes to slay them. He does not come to serve. He comes, as Jesus says, to kill and to destroy. That's what Satan designs to do for the human race. Now with that type of understanding then, when we ask ourselves the question, who is our enemy? And when I ask, who is our enemy? I'm actually asking, who is humanity's enemy? Because when we say who's our enemy, we could, we could mean that in different ways and we could come up with some different answers. We could say, you know, well, the scriptures talk about people being enemies of the cross. So there are people who are enemies of Jesus Christ because they don't trust in him. So those are enemies. Um, or we could also say, my flesh is my enemy. My flesh uh, denies God and doesn't want to follow after him. That's my enemy. But when I'm asking who is our enemy, I'm talking about humanity's enemy. That, that outside beings or those outside beings outside of us who want to seek our destruction. And Paul says it's the devil and the forces of evil in the spiritual realm. That is humanity's common enemy. Every single human being has a common enemy. Satan and his minions. So he's our enemy, okay? Point one. Who's our enemy? The evil forces. Evil spiritual realm. Now, the next question I want to ask is, what are the enemy's tactics then? A good soldier has to know who the enemy is, and then what's the enemy's plan? What's he trying to do? Because in order to have a battle, you have to know, where's the enemy going? How are we going to get there? What, what, what does he try to do? Okay, so verse 11, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want you to focus on that word scheme. The Greek word for scheme is methodeia. Methodeia. Do you hear an English word in there? Methodeia. <laughs> Method. All right. Now, this word in the Greek, though, has an idea of being crafty and deceptive. So Satan has a plan, and he has a plan of being, and within his plan, his plan is to be deceptive and crafty in how he puts together these methods of, of deception. Satan does not want to be obvious. He, he doesn't want to, for people to go, oh, that, oh, that's so, so bad. I would never do that. That's not how Satan wants to work. He wants to deceive us into thinking this would be a really good thing to do. I mean, the Bible says of Satan that he disguises himself as a what? Angel of light. So we shouldn't be shocked, you know, when people might talk of wicked things, but they're like, yeah, but this is so great and this is so wonderful and I feel so encouraged by this, you know. Well, Satan wants to work in those ways. This is part of his schemes to be subtle. And so Paul says, in order to fight against the schemes, 
of the devil, we need to put on the full armor of God. Now, the armor of God that Paul mentions here goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, we're told of God's armor that he has by which he fights an enemy. And now Paul in Ephesians actually says that God gives his children his armor to wear. And by the way, it's better armor than, you know, Saul giving David his armor. It was too big for him. It didn't fit. But somehow, God, his armor fits us. We can put on our daddy's armor, our, our God's and Father's armor, and wear it and fight against it. Now, again, I'm not going to get into all the pieces here. But essentially, Paul says, We address the enemy's lies and deception when we're immersed in truth, the righteousness of Christ, and the gospel. When we're immersed in truth, righteousness, and the gospel, that's how we are going to fight the enemy. Truth. What really is true? This means then that Satan will attack with Lies. Deception as well, that would be like, it sounds like truth, but it has something missing in there. I mean, even if you think of Adam and Eve, Satan says, you will be like God, knowing between good and evil. In one sense, Satan was right. You can see how it's deceptive. You're going to be like God. What I mean is, you're going to know good and evil. And so in one sense, yeah, he's telling the truth, but he's being entirely deceptive because he makes it sound like this would be a great thing for you. This is what you need. So Satan works in these ways through lies and deception, whereas we need to be people of the truth. And how do we know the truth? The word. Paul also talks about righteousness, which means then the right, this is the righteousness of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, which means that I believe that Satan deceives human race through self-righteousness. Let's be self-righteous people, self-made people, that we can accomplish things on our own and we don't need necessarily God in order to do these righteous things. And then finally, with the gospel itself, Satan is anti-gospel. He does not want us to be reconciled to God. He wants us to be apart from God. So anything that he can say or do in order to get us to believe that we have not made it yet, or that maybe we don't need to be reconciled with God, or that if we could be reconciled to God, but we just have to do all the self-righteous things. This is how we fight the enemy. Through truth, the righteousness of Christ, and the gospel of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, in the place of sinners. So I want you to think about different ways in which Satan and the spiritual forces um, attack us in this world through lies, okay? And we can think of many examples of lies, okay? But I'm just giving one here with lies. Um, I'm so burdened, and I know many of you are, I, I hope all of you in this room are burdened by this, But I look around at our culture and so burdened by the digression even within the last couple of months regarding the value of the life of a child. I mean, it's obviously decades 
you know, that's been going on. But even discussions of now thinking if the abortion is botched, then we can just, let's, let's vote to approve to kill the baby. Um, but arguments go back longer ago. You know, let's, let's you know, this is, a, this is a fetus and we're going to refer to it as an it. We're going to refer to it as tissue. You know, and in some types of ways, you're like, well, yeah, it is tissue, you know, but it's also a human life and it has value. And Satan is, and um, evil often reframes arguments and rephrases words in order to get us to follow in a trajectory that is a lie. The, this baby in the womb is a human being and a valuable human life. And listen, Satan, if he seeks to destroy and kill and not minister to human beings, he doesn't want to see more image bearers of God on this planet. And yet, he'll make arguments in such ways to say, but this is pro-women, you know, and this is, what, this is what's good for them, right? So you've got this deception and also making it feel like it's a comfort. It's not. It's wrong. And we should love people in the midst of those decisions that they're making and share the gospel with them. But we need to expose the lies with the truth. Or I think about this aspect of self-righteousness. Every, one of the distinguishing characteristics between Christianity and every other religion is that every other religion has a method of of self-attainment. Every single one. Only Christianity, out of all the world religions, says nothing that you can do at all, whatsoever, All the world religions are brought about in some way from the spiritual forces of darkness because they promote self-righteousness, not the righteousness of God. I think about even within maybe our own culture where now many people just don't even think they need reconciliation with God whatsoever. It's, we talk about justification by faith. I know I've mentioned this before. I think that many people now just say justification by death, you know? As long as I die, I'm going to make it to heaven. I'll be declared righteous. Um, I also think about even the, the, the religious realm in the United States now, where I'm so concerned about where, uh, what people think about the gospel. So many preachers and Christian books where the gospel is like so minimal, if it's even there. And the emphasis is more so us. Uh, there's a there's a major best-selling book out right now that bills itself as Christian, um, but it's called Girl, Stop Apologizing. And um, like I said, it bills itself as a Christian book, but it really is. If you take the quotes in the context, it is self-help. That's all it is. And so then you just kind of slap Bible verses in there, and then it sounds, sounds Christian, but there's not l- gospel. So it's not Christian. It's just slapping Bible verses in to support your point. Um, I'm reminded of one writer in the early 20th century. Well, he was a pastor in Philadelphia. And he was talking on the national broadcast for CBS radio, early 1900s. And he posed the question, what would Philadelphia look like if Satan took over? You can imagine, what would, what would Holland look like if Satan took over? 
Okay, now, this is, this is what he said. Now, by the way, he's asking this question in the midst of what was called the social gospel movement. Social gospel is kind of like, you don't need to preach, you know, you don't need to talk about the gospel, just live out nice things and people will come to faith in Jesus or, you know, they'll be changed. But this is what he says. If Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, and children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Satan's deception can look like demonic oppressions, possessions, like what we can even hear stories around the globe and throughout history, those types of things. But Satan's work can also look like great morality apart from faith, uh, uh, trying to deny that he even exists and that there is no problem whatsoever, to keep blind eyes blinded. Satan, the demons, the demonic realm are crafty. And I believe that Satan's design is to always promote keeping people from trusting the Lord. That's it. Because apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. So anything that keeps you from recognizing and living in utter dependence on him, he will promote. So great question to ask yourself if you're reading something, if you're watching something. Great question to ask is, does this promote my utter dependence on the Lord? That I need him completely and that I need Christ alone as my savior. Does that promote that? If not... There could be some deception in there. So we know who our enemy is, ultimately. We know his tactics of deception with lies, self-righteousness, anti-gospel. How do we respond? How do we respond? First, I would say pray and fast. This is what Jonathan mentioned in his sermon. Pray, 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 pray. I also add fasting because it's mentioned in the scriptures that we must be praying and fasting. There's some aspects of spiritual warfare that involve this more complete awareness in our own souls that I am recognizing I need God. And so physically, I am in the posture of saying, God, only you can answer this. So praying and fasting, praying is dependence exercises that dependence on him. So pray and fasting. Secondly, love fellow human beings. I think too often we negate Satan as our great enemy and we just treat every human being like enemies. Now, Jesus says, love your enemies, which means we have enemies, okay? But we're never called to love Satan, Okay, we are called to love fellow human beings. Okay, that's part of warfare in this world. If Satan seeks to destroy human beings, then our response should be to love human beings with the love that Christ has given to us, to exercise that towards fellow human beings. Listen, sometimes I get concerned because I, I hear some Christians talk with almost vitriol against Muslims, Mormons, atheists, Russians, Democrats, Republicans, independents. We treat them as enemies. Instead of loving them, by the way, 
Honestly, this is one of the reasons why I hate election season. Because in my mind, Christians often begin to sound like non-Christians. They sound more concerned with the kingdom of this earth than the testimony of Christ. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't stand up for morals. We should. But I think whenever we speak, we are called by Jesus to speak the truth in what? Love. Speak the truth in love for people. If you're not communicating to people in a way that shows that you love them, you should not speak. You must be expressing the Savior's love and the grace of the gospel. That is more important. That is more important than getting my own way. Their souls are more valuable, even in some ways, than than my own. Because I'm free. If I die, I'm with the Lord. But what about them? What about them? If Satan's greatest warfare is to take down humans and keep them blind, then the way that we fight against Satan's attack is love towards our enemies, love towards people. Treat them with great kindness. And again, the only way we can do that is if we're immersed in the gospel, knowing our righteousness is in Christ, knowing the word of God and the truth of the word of God, knowing that we were rebels against God, maybe even worse in action than some of the people that we're speaking against. But we're all hopeless unless God came into our lives. So pray and fast. Love our fellow humans. Um, Be in the word. How does Jesus fight Satan in the wilderness? What does he do? With the word. He quotes scripture. By the way, Satan can tempt us by using the Bible. So just because the Bible is used, you can't go, well, the Bible says this. Well, check the context, right? That may not be exactly what he's saying, you know? Satan takes it out of context, but he will use the Bible. And Jesus quotes the Bible back to him. And the scriptures tell us that we're to be people of the word. Uh, Adam and or Eve, when she was tempted, what does she use in her temptation? Kind of her own logic, a little mixture of what God said and then what she thinks. We're not supposed to eat from it or touch it, which God never said don't touch, right? So we need to be people of the word. We need to be in the word. Lean not on our own understandings, but in all our ways, acknowledge him and he will make our paths straight. Listen, if, if you're not a person in the word, it is no surprise to me. It should be no surprise to you if you're experiencing onslaught of attack and just keep giving in. Because The scriptures say, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, some of you could say, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine not being in the word. You know, I've had seasons where I've thought that too. And then I got in the word and I was like, I was doing awful. I thought I was doing fine, but it was really bad. Horrible. Thank you, Lord, for getting me back into the word. Be in the word. And if you're in the word, then the next point is you expose the darkness. Ephesians says that we expose the darkness with the light. And whatever, becomes, whatever the light is exposing, that thing becomes light. This is the way that warfare works. When we expose the darkness, that that light would shine on it and then transform whatever that thing is. 
that, it, that God would rescue us. So we should be people who speak the truth in love, exposing the lies with the light of Jesus Christ in prayer that Jesus, his light shines through those things and changes, expose the darkness, not just the actions, but expose how it does not magnify the Lord and how we need to be trusting in our Savior and seeking after him. Now, the next point is know your victory. Know your victory. Romans 6 tells us we are slaves of righteousness. And Romans 16 says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Your feet. Jesus crushed Satan, and because Jesus is the serpent crusher, now he has enabled all of those who follow him to crush the serpent as well. We are victorious. Do you believe that? Do you believe? We are victorious. And so therefore, we can war and battle against the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that we can just walk around and, and I don't know how else to say this, but it's, you know, Satan's there, pew, you know, boom, he's gone, you know. And, and I kind of, th- I think of the, the uh, story of Simon Magnus in Acts, where he saw these miracles and he's like, I want that too. And all he wanted, he wanted the miracles so that he could wield the power of the Spirit and use the Spirit in how he wanted it. Sometimes people talk about spiritual warfare like that. That I can manipulate God to give me so that I can do all of these things. That's not how spiritual warfare works. It's always dependence on the Lord, seeking after him, trusting him. Just the basic means of grace in the word and prayer. But we are, in the midst of that, God works in the spiritual battle. And, and, and we must know we are victorious. Sometimes I think Christians speak with such fear that I've wondered if they have forgotten that the infinite power of God rests on them and works in them by the power of the Spirit. In my own life. Some of us are so fearful of dying or hearing about the degrading of society. They worry about their children. And, and some people almost try to become Amish, keeping their families from knowing what's going on in this world. But I believe the only way we can love our enemies is if we are with them. And Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, which, by the way, does not mean that we keep the earth from from getting worse. It doesn't mean that we are the saviors, but salt adds flavor and salt can kind of hold back the degradation. But the reality is the only way salt is effective is if it's on the meat. We can't stay in the shaker. So we get into this world and we trust that even if the world kills me, I'm victorious because Jesus is victorious. Now, some of you could say, well, I don't feel victorious. I feel this immense battle. I'm always feeling this struggle all around me. And this is the other illustration David gave, which I really appreciated. He said, in battle, you have different terrain on which you're fighting. And you could have a mountain battle. And there's tactics within the mountain battle. 
And so you're battling against your own flesh or you're battling against the, the spiritual realm in some type of way. And, and, and you're first discouraged, but then you're starting to grow and you're starting to understand the tactics. And you're like, ha, 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 yes, boom, yes, I'm so encouraged. I'm growing, this is great. And then, you know, maybe two weeks later, a month later, something, you're like, oh, it's going really bad again. What is happening? And David said, I wonder if what's happened is, is we're in different terrain. We're now in a field and you don't have mountain tactics in the field. You've got to learn new tactics. And the scriptures teach us to know the tactics of Satan, to recognize where am I? How am I? How, what lessons am I to learn? How do I depend on God in this season? Listen, don't be discouraged by being in a battle. Don't be discouraged by that because every Christian is in spiritual battle. Instead, rejoice. God has given me the victory in Christ and I can depend on the Lord and know he will see me through every single battle and the God of peace will crush Satan underneath his children's feet. So believe the promises of God. Trust the spirit. Wield the sword. Depend on the Lord. Grow. Grow in truth and righteousness and in the gospel. Pray. Pray pray and know that God will yield his fruit in his time. And I think someday in eternity future, we will begin to see how all of this worked together for his glory, how all of this worked together, even within the spiritual realm and it all connected, we'll see and we will praise God all the more. Let me pray. And then after I pray, you can be dismissed. Um, you can pick up your children and we can uh, fellowship together around food. Father, thank you for your mercies and your kindnesses to us. Thank you that we can know you and trust you, and I pray that we would. I pray that we would focus more on our Savior even than on our enemy, but Father, I also pray that in knowing that there is an enemy, that we would have greater zeal to depend on you, to not take you for granted, but to rejoice in you. And Lord, I pray even this week that we might even have eyes to see your fruit in opening blind eyes and unlocking deaf ears. May you be praised and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.